Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Welcome to Word Bomb, a TVO podcast. I'm Pippa Johnstone. And I'm Karina Palmatesta. And today's word is a big one. It's true. We're talking about the word native. I have to be honest, this is coming at the end of our season, partly because I think we were a little scared of it and kept putting it off. Totally. There's a desire to get it right. And we want to acknowledge that up front. It's nerve-wracking to talk about a topic this big that we're on the outside of, especially as two settlers. A word we'll get into in a bit. I think this feeling is one that a lot of non-Indigenous people can identify with. It's this fear of communicating offense or disrespect, of being insensitive or taking the wrong tone accidentally. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from the unknown, like this sense that when it comes to Indigenous peoples in Canada, maybe you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. and will stumble unwittingly into a terrible slur. Yeah, I actually had a moment like that with Phelan, one of the people we interviewed for this episode, who I will introduce a little later. I very casually said Huron-Wendat, referring to a nation here in Ontario, which I've heard so many times in land acknowledgements, right? Yeah, yeah, me too. And she was like, "Mm, just say Wendat. Because the root of the word Huron is derogatory. Oh. It's from an old French word for a wild boar's head and was a nickname given to the Wendat people because the men's hairstyle reminded the French of a wild boar's bristles. Okay, see, that's such a good example of what people might be scared of walking into, that kind of conversation, because I'd never heard about that before. Me neither. Good to know. I would say Huron-Wendat too and not suspect I was being derogatory at all. Because it's so widely used. But it's good to know more about the history behind the words we use when we talk about Indigenous peoples in Canada. At least when I was going through elementary and high school in Ontario from the mid-90s to 2009, the amount of Indigenous education was pretty thin. Yeah, BC wasn't much better. I remember in grade five or six, we did a unit on the Haida and we built longhouses out of popsicle sticks. I did the popsicle stick thing, too. We all had dioramas in the library of longhouses. And we didn't learn about residential schools, the Indian Act, anything that would paint Canada in a negative light. And then you read so much in the news. Um, The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, missing and murdered Indigenous women, land acknowledgments, which we'll talk about later as well. None of those things feel definitively explained. Mm -hmm. The news cycle in Canada on Indigenous issues can feel empty and low on information, or worse, like lip service. Yeah. That anxiety that we talked about about getting it right when it comes to Indigenous peoples is exactly the reason why we felt it was so important to cover the word native. Max Feinday, a Nahio activist from Sweetgrass First Nation, put it really well on Ryan McMahon's podcast, Think Indigenous. Here's Max. I see non-Indigenous people who are afraid. They don't know what to do. They're facing the challenge 
of a changing world, particularly those older ones. I see young non-Indigenous people who are open but also afraid. They don't know what to call us, Abidigenous and Indian, I'm not really sure. I say as long as it doesn't have the F word before it, I don't really matter. You know, it doesn't matter to me. That's, that's just me, though. And Max is making a joke there, but he's speaking to how much misunderstanding and racism can get packed into these words. There are so many words that have been used to label Indigenous peoples in Canada, and they're all so loaded. And so many of these words were assigned by colonial forces that didn't either respect or understand the communities that they were labeling. Right. So to trace this back properly, I think we have to talk about all the other words that have been used outside of Native to describe Indigenous peoples in Canada with the help of some really great guests. For this episode, like I said, I sat down with Phelan Johnson. Phelan identifies as Mohawk and Tuscarora, and she's a co-host on the Secret Life of Canada podcast. Oh, that's a great podcast, by the way. I really like the snack episode. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good one. Trying Caesars and ketchup chips and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's an awesome show. If you haven't heard it yet, you should definitely check it out. But I first got to know Phelan not through her podcast, but through her playwriting. She's written several plays that deal with questions of Indigenous identity, so she was a perfect person to talk to for this episode. And her play Salt Baby starts off with this scene between the titular character, who is examining her own heritage, and her white date. Here's a clip from the opening scene of Salt Baby, recorded at the Belfry Theatre in Victoria. Really? Yep. Huh. Neat. Neat? Yeah, I don't know. Neat. What about you? Mm. Well, my mom is Scottish and my dad is English and Irish, so I'm pretty white. So, what else are you? You're not full, right? How much Indian... Sorry. Is that, like, totally offensive? Uh, native? Or... Aboriginal? Or... Any help here would be much appreciated. I say Indian, but I don't like other people to say that until we really know each other, you know? First Nations seems pretty safe to me, but everybody wants to be called something different these days. Okay, so how First Nations are you? Because you don't really, you know, you don't really look like one. A First Nations... Wait, so that's the first moment, so she just gets right into it. Mm Mm-hmm. I asked her about that moment in the play, what inspired her to start the show off with that bold moment of tension around labels between the love interests. Here's Phelan. That scene is put at the front of the play almost as a way of like, let's just get this out of the way because I'm going to say it. Because I could pretend that, you know, Indigenous people didn't talk like that. I could pretend that we don't say Indian, but we do. And so I kind of try and find a way to address that in some way so that people understand what's happening and they understand that I can say this, but you can't. Or you can if you are, but if you're not, you can't and you shouldn't. There are certain words we're going to talk about today that, like Phelan says, belong to the group that they refer to. You know, a lot of this comes down to what linguists call in-group or out-group usage. So certain loaded labels usually attached to things like race, gender, sexuality, they'll have one meaning if they're used by members of that group, say about solidarity in the face of discrimination and erasure, and a different meaning if they're used by someone who doesn't belong to that group. 
Yeah, outgroup usage is loaded. Like, let's take the usage of the word Indian, as Phelan mentioned. It has one meaning when Phelan uses it, and an entirely different meaning if, say, I used it as someone in the outgroup. So when a settler uses that word, it's suddenly imbued with all the racist historical connotations of that word. So let's run through the kinds of labels Phelan is talking about. First, let's talk about the word we used off the top: settler. Really, this word is used as a synonym for non-indigenous. So immediately, you might think of European settlers, but the word also refers to immigrants and non-indigenous inhabitants of this land. And the word implies Canada's colonial history. It's kind of a way of like verbally clocking the fact of your history, whether your family has been in Canada for one generation or seven.、Mm-hmm. Some people feel a sense of discomfort with that label. Feel like it creates an indigenous settler divide. Right, but then again, that makes sense because the word points out that colonization isn't just a thing that happened historically. Right, it's not over; it's ongoing. And that discomfort, I think we can agree, is pretty revealing.、Mm-hmm. Sort of points out where we're at in Canada. Yeah, and the different words that we've used throughout history can reveal even more about the evolution of the indigenous settler relationship, like Indian, which we mentioned earlier. And in Canada, the word Indian makes me think of the Indian Act, a statute from 1876, through which the federal government determined who is a status Indian and other things like how bands are allowed to operate on their traditional lands.、Mm-hmm. So the word Indian does carry that baggage. Totally. Here's Phelan on the word Indian. If you don't understand the history behind that word or what that word encases and all of the things that are wrapped up in that word, then then you you can't use it. I feel like when I use it, it's an act of defiance. Like I'm doing it to be deliberately harsh. It's a choice. And so when you know a non-indigenous person uses Indian and says it to me, I feel like, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> you no, <laughs> you're not allowed. <laughs> like you, 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 you actually you can't do that. You can't because you don't live it. Right before coming to the podcast today, I was eating at the Pow Wow Cafe in Kensington Market, which is this incredible Indigenous restaurant. It's so good. It's so good, <laughs> and one of their signature dishes is called Indian tacos. Oh yeah. And I read a little article that they have posted on the wall in which the chef says, "Should I change the name from Indian to Indigenous tacos to be politically correct?" But then, Indian tacos. Sort of have a life of their own within the indigenous community,、um, so he was saying like now this word has been reclaimed in this food product, uh-huh, uh-huh. and so he decided to keep calling them Indian tacos. His choice. It's his word. Yeah. And then of course another cringy word is Aboriginal.、Mm-hmm. I associate it with I don't know like grade school. It feels kind of governmenty. Yeah, it feels dated to me. It's a word that I think we used to think of as okay,、uh-huh. and then nowadays I、Not、really、so、don't、much. feel right about it. Yeah. What did Phelan have to say about? Aboriginal. Oh, here's Phelan. Aboriginal feels gross, and it's a weird thing because because again, now that's that was what the government was using. Well, that's what the government uses. That's like the catch-all. When I was, you know, applying for grants, you'd have to check a box, and so you'd have to check Aboriginal. This was years ago, right? Because it's not in fashion. It's not very fashionable anymore. I mean, Aboriginal, like the not original or you know unoriginal, like it it. It just doesn't sound like a very nice thing to call someone. It 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 feels incredibly offensive. What Phelan mentions there is that etymologically, the prefix ab in Aboriginal can mean from, but it can also mean off or away from. Think of like 
abnormal or abduct. Exactly. And then we have First Nations, which is referring to indigenous peoples in Canada specifically, okay. i.e. not in the U.S. or anywhere else. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Here's Phelan on the term First Nations. First Nations is is good, but I feel like I feel like people don't understand the difference between Inuit, Métis, and First Nations. And to be able to use those words, you have to understand what they mean. And I think that's where people get caught up. Whereas I prefer specificity. I prefer, you know, what's your nation? Uh, First Nations is a, a blanket, safe blanket. Indigenous is a very big safe blanket. <laughs> So let's talk about the word indigenous. Indigenous is the word I hear the most nowadays. It's kind of like the quote-unquote safe umbrella term. For sure. It has a really interesting history, actually. Uh, The word gained prominence in the 1970s when different groups from around the world organized to push for more indigenous presence in the United Nations. Mm. So the word was a way to identify and unite all of these groups that had been affected by displacement and settlement on their traditional territories. And the word indigenous was chosen because the leaders felt other options were tied too closely to specific histories or power dynamics that were imposed by colonizers. Cool. In Canada, indigenous is an umbrella term that refers to First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples collectively. Phelan added a point that I liked about the word itself. I think in some ways the foreignness of it to some people is a good thing because it hits you differently. Like you're unfamiliar with it and so it takes you a second to think about it. And I think that second of thinking is where that rewiring can happen, right? Where people can take a moment to consider the words that they had used previously. Think about this new word that maybe was just introduced to them in a different way and consider it. And finally, I asked Phelan to give us her take on the word of our episode today, native. Native's fine. Native feels old now. Native feels dated. But it was definitely, I think, in fashion, <laughs> like maybe 10, 15 years ago. Like, I don't know, early aughts. <laughs> like, it feels like late 90s. Or I, I know lo- like lots of people use it still. I think more so on the reserve even. People will use it more. And I think that's because on the reserve, you don't really have to consider words in the same way because you're in your community. You're not othered there. You just are. I agree with Phelan that the word feels old, but you do still see it. We're recording this the day after the American midterm elections. So many news sources from the New York Times to CNN are reporting that the first two Native American women were elected to Congress. Which is exciting. Totally. But it also flags how different the terminology is between Canada and the U.S. Mm -hmm. We don't have time to get into all of the differences, but it is interesting how the term Native American is commonly used in the States, but you'll never hear Native Canadian. No. So we've gone through a lot of words today. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should talk about why we wanted to profile the word Native specifically out of all those choices. Well, one thing that we found interesting about the word native was that it seems to be the word that gets used the most out of the indigenous context. Yeah. Yeah. There are so many examples of this. Like people talk about um, digital natives. Which is something I'd never heard of before you and our producer Hannah Sung started to use it in conversation. Yeah. uh, Digital natives... Uh, refers to people born and raised during the age of digital technology. So millennials on up. So we are digital natives. Yeah, we are. Side note, my mom hates it when I use that phrase. I get a big, 
eye roll every time. So I try to use it as often as possible. Digital native, she hates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I usually say it when she's like pecking at the keyboard <laughs> with two fingers, and I'm like hovering, <laughs> hovering over her.、Um, yeah. <laughs> Or you hear the word "native" being used in reference to plants.、Uh, plants are native to a certain habitat.、Mm-hmm. It's in our national anthem.、Right. Growing up, every morning before class, we had to sing "O Canada," which starts with "Our home and native land." I also think about、uh, native advertising. What's that? Like when you're reading a magazine and an ad follows the layout and visual style of the magazine to make you think it's kind of organically placed there、mm-hmm. in an editorial way.、Mm-hmm. That seems like something only you would know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's clearly a flexible word, which can be kind of jarring because we also associate it with indigenous people. It's a word about identity.、Mm-hmm. And honestly, the etymology caught my eye too. So there's the Latin nativus,、uh, which means innate, produced by birth,、mm. and the old French natif, which can mean born in, but also something like raw or unspoiled.、Ooh. And in the early to mid 15th century, that's around the time when the first colonists from England arrived in what's now Virginia and Massachusetts.、Uh, around that time, it came to also mean not just born in a place, but Bound to a place, as in bound in serfdom or born in slavery. Whoa, that's some dark etymology.、Yeah. <laughs> and the part that you said about being like unspoiled—it reminds me of that creepy colonial idea of peoples being like undiscovered. Yeah, like pristine, primitive.、Mm-hmm. So there's obviously a lot to unpack when it comes to any of these words that refer to indigenous peoples, and that makes people uneasy because they want a simple solution. But as I talked about with Phelan, that just isn't possible. Here's Phelan. People want to know what they can say and what they can't say, or how to say the right thing. And so, what I always say, because people do ask this question, like, how do I ask if you're Native or Indigenous or Aboriginal or First Nations or whatever? And I just say, I just ask someone where their people are from. Where are your people from? Like that's that's the easiest way. To get to the root of what you're asking, Phelan's saying that what she's looking for is specificity and genuine curiosity.、Mm-hmm. Really reminds me of hearing something similar from Mika Lafond, who I spoke with for this episode. Mika is a Cree poet and editor. Well, how many times has Canada changed what they call us? You know, they started with Indian, and then it was Aboriginal, and then. Now it's indigenous, and it's always they're always trying to identify us in a word that that they think is appropriate, rather than if you look back at the treaty relationship, like I'm an Ahio, that's my nation, that's what I call myself, but the the government changes what they call me based on legislation or what they think is politically correct at the time. Mika is from the Muskeg Lake Cree Nation in Treaty Six territory, and in addition to her writing and editing work, she's an instructor and mentor at the Indian Teacher Education Program at the University of Saskatchewan. And I reached out to her because I thought, who better to speak to the power of words and word choice than someone who's indigenous and who's a writer?、Mm-hmm. I feel like when I talk to other non-indigenous people about this word, I get the sense they just sort of want this like hard and fast primer、uh-huh. of like yes and no answers rules, and that just isn't possible with the nuance of like 
identity. Yeah, yeah. You might feel safest using an umbrella term like indigenous, but there's so much more nuance available. It makes me think of、uh, this cafe I used to buy lunch in in Mississauga when I was a teenager.、Mm -hmm. It was in this really dumpy strip mall near my high school, and it was called something like European Cafe. <laughs> And all my friends and I would laugh at it because it's such a hilariously reductive idea, like this idea of European food.、Mm -hmm. And yet we're doing pretty much the same thing when we use a word like indigenous. In fact, I recently read an interesting conversation on Twitter between Cindy Blackstock. She's a Gixon activist and the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada, and Tantu Cardinal, a prominent indigenous actor in Canada. So Cindy Blackstock tweeted, "Today's word to consider not using re-First Nations, indigenous. It fails to capture the distinctness of First Nations. Use the nation name or First Nations, or for all original peoples in Canada, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit." And Tantu Cardinal responded, "I have a few nations coursing through my veins. I prefer indigenous. To me, it means connected to the land." This is a great example about how there's not going to be one opinion on this. There's、mm -hmm. a diversity of Indigenous peoples in Canada, and therefore a diversity of opinions, and they're all completely valid. Totally. Bottom line: there's no cheat sheet for something like this. Yeah, Mika said something similar. Well, with each author, it's going to be different. With each nation, it's going to be different. So there can't be just a simple set of rules. It's really about Making the effort to collaborate with the author and to collaborate with the nation to make sure that you're representing that nation or that community properly. Mika's a poet, and her poetry collection, which was published by Thistledown Press, has facing pages in Cree and English translation. And for that book, she had a Cree-speaking editor, which she said was incredibly helpful. And I'm sure that's the kind of editorial relationship that's lacking for a lot of Indigenous writers who are looking to get their work published.、Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of other issues that Indigenous writers face getting their work into the world. For example, take the technique of circular storytelling, which Mika used in her collection. She said she often has to contextualize her work for publishers or editors used to non-Indigenous linear storytelling styles. I had to explain some of the repetition that I wanted to use in my poetry. The repetition sort of had to do with the circular storytelling. That was that was what I was trying to show on the page, and so I had to explain that you know it works because when my grandmother was telling me the story, she would tell part of it and then she would circle back and she would start almost at the same place. I mean, obviously, the issue here is that in the publishing industry. Uh, there's not enough indigenous writers, editors, publishing、mm -hmm. houses, and historically, most of the published writing about indigenous peoples has not been by indigenous peoples.、Mm -hmm. Circular versus linear storytelling is just one of many examples of how storytelling can differ between cultures. Or even like the basic concept of intellectual property, copyright, which is such a cornerstone of the North American and European publishing industries. It's very individualistic. It's such a different worldview and a different process to how Indigenous peoples share their own stories. So, like an Indigenous person who writes down a story did not necessarily author. 
that story. The story is instead the cultural property of the indigenous peoples that it came from.、Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, the copyright is held by an entire community of people, not just one. I picture like an intellectual property lawyer at a big publishing house, just like <laughs> losing their mind at the concept of a community collectively owning and sharing a story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I asked Mika what she thought about the state of indigenous publishing in Canada. Right now, I think it's really in a boom. Everywhere I turn, I meet new artists who are. Publishing work or performing. There's a whole wave of performing artists, and I think that because there are so many people who, after the Idol No More in 2012, who were ready to share their voice, I think that they're waking up and、um, they're sharing their voice wherever wherever possible, and they're making sure that it's their voice that's being represented. Yeah, I think of like Jeremy Dutcher, who just won the Polaris Music Prize, probably the most prestigious music prize you can win in Canada. He's from the Tobique Nation in New Brunswick, and there are lots of great recent books. I think of the Marrow Thieves by Cherie Demeline, which was on Canada Reads and won the Governor General's Award for YA Literature in 2017, or Heartberries, which is. A really amazing memoir that was released in 2018 by Therese Marie Myatt. I feel like in every art circle, there's hunger for indigenous storytelling, indigenous voices. Uh huh. Side note: I can't talk about indigenous publishing without bringing up an amazing resource called the Elements of Indigenous Style.、Mm-hmm. It's by Gregory Younging, and it was published in early 2018. And、uh, I think it should be on every. Editor's bookshelf. It's a reference manual for writing about Indigenous peoples, and I've read it cover to cover a couple of times because of how clear and concise and thoughtful it is. Here's a story. Actually,、um, when I went to buy the Elements of Indigenous Style、mm-hmm. in Indigo, I first walked to the section that houses reference books like APA and、uh, the Chicago Manual of Style and、mm-hmm. dictionaries. Makes sense. And it. Took me a few minutes of looking to finally realize that I was in the wrong section, and I ended up finding it finally in a completely different section, on the one shelf that they had captioned "Indigenous Voices." Oh, isn't that like exactly the issue? Yeah, yeah. That this beautiful book that's so useful isn't housed with the other books of its kind. Exactly, it should be right up there next to Chicago or、uh, the Canadian Press Style Guide. It should be there for editors and writers to find as a reference. It's that. Arm's length treatment, as if it's a niche topic.、Mm-hmm. It's so essential this kind of book because it drives home the point that it's not just about blatantly offensive words. It's subtle nuances in word choice and phrasing and verb tense and punctuation. It gets into this really interesting stuff. Like, don't talk about indigenous peoples in the past tense,、mm. as if they're some historical footnote, which yeah, is、totally. something that a lot of publications will do. Or another really interesting discussion is capitalization. Yeah, there's a section that goes into how、um, capitalizing indigenous identities and institutions is a really subtle 
but powerful way to communicate respect. Yeah, like how Phelan said, the word indigenous is a little bit like foreign in non-indigenous mouths, right? Which sort of like is a vocal way of capitalizing it. Uh huh. Yeah. It sort of stands out from the crowd. Yeah. Does the book talk about possessives too? Possessive language. Hmm. That's another thing it touches on. Because I have seen indigenous people talking online about that way we talk about like Canada's First Nations, Canada's indigenous peoples. Yeah. That kind of possessive construction. Mm -hmm. I asked Phelan her thoughts on that possessive language. I'm like, if I'm yours, what have you done for me lately? (laughs) Yeah, if I am Canada's, if I'm one of Canada's Indigenous First Nations Aboriginal people, I'm like, where's my present? Um, Yeah, I just, (laughs) I'm like, you don't, you don't get us. I really recommend checking the elements of Indigenous style out because it's a goldmine. There's really too much to go into. But the main takeaway is that tiny shifts in word choice and sentence construction and even punctuation can communicate so much more than you think. It really makes you reevaluate stuff you hear and kind of gloss over without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, we've put out a bunch of episodes so far, and we've been including a land acknowledgement at the end each time. And... We've never really talked about why we're doing it, like acknowledged (laughs) why we're doing it. You're right. I don't think we have explicitly. And I come from a background in theater, and it's customary in Vancouver, where I'm from, and also in Toronto theaters, too, to do a land acknowledgement before the show. And I'm always curious, why don't we do that for projects that exist online? I think it's funny how live gatherings include an acknowledgement, but nothing digital does. Uh, Yeah, that's true. So we decided to include one because language is so geographically based, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, anything that we're building here is deeply rooted to the land that we're building it on. But I sometimes wonder about land acknowledgements if they actually land, if they mean anything, or if they've become an empty gesture. Yeah, like lip service-y. Mm-hmm. I know Phelan includes a land acknowledgement in her podcast, and she's done a lot of research on the subject. So I asked her how she feels about land acknowledgements. Okay, what did she say? Well, she told me about this conversation she had after a conference where she'd been discussing land acknowledgements. Afterwards, one of the professors came up to me and was like, do you know why I like them? And he was an Indigenous guy. And I was like... Tell me why. And he was like, it's not enough, but it's somewhere we can hang our hat. It's not enough, but it's a starting place and it's a place where we can be present. And so that really, that really resonated with me because I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. For me, it's not a perfect thing. Land acknowledgements are not a perfect thing, but they are, they're a place to hang our hat right now until things can start to get better. I think it's a step in the right direction. And with that said, we'd like to acknowledge that Word Bomb, a TVO podcast, is recorded on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation, and any other nations who care for the land, acknowledged and unacknowledged, recorded and unrecorded. we'd like to thank Phelan Johnson and Mika Lafond for their interviews. This topic especially is so large and there are so many opinions. So as two settlers, we really appreciated both of their time and energy and wisdom. We learned a lot. And hope to continue to learn. Totally. Additional thanks to Ryan McMahon, Max Feinde, and the Think Indigenous podcast, as well as the Belfry Theatre for their contributions. Word Bomb is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone. And me, Karina Palmatesta. 
This is our last episode of our first season, so we wanted to take a minute to say thank you to everyone who's listened, rated, reviewed. We especially appreciated all the people who reached out on Twitter and Instagram to pitch us word ideas. We love getting that feedback. Totally. And we're really excited to start thinking about season two. Yeah, so keep the pitches coming. We'll keep you posted on the future of the show if you subscribed, and you can follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at Pippa Johnstone. And I'm on Twitter at Kpalm. That's K-P-A-A-L-M. Or you can follow the show at Wordbomb Podcast on Instagram and at tvo.org slash wordbomb. And finally, thank you so much to Hannah Sung, manager of podcasts at TVO, mm-hmm. and everyone at TVO for everything they've done for us this season from technical help to editorial feedback. Thanks for listening.